Well, good afternoon, friends. Are you feeling nice and awake? Give yourself a little slap around the face. It's um, uh, just to say, like, I don't know how this has been for you. I hope it's been uh, as good for you as it has been for us. So it's been such, such a gift to be here with my family. And um, honestly, uh, like, the whole thing has been extraordinary. But I don't know how you felt about Martin speaking this morning. I feel absolutely undone by his uh, message this morning. And um, uh, I, would have flown, I would have flown to Australia for the weekend to hear that, that message. And I know that that's something we'll take home with us. And uh, also, thank you so much for your hospitality, your uh, friendship. Uh, the, just the warmth of your welcome has been really overwhelming. And, and um, for Menno and Marianne, they are remarkable, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, it just I don't know how they've done all of this, but... Uh, We should just thank uh, Menno and Marianne for what they've done and their team. Yeah, amazing. So good, so good. And so as we we come towards the end of our time together, uh, inevitably our hearts and our minds start to think about what comes next? You know, what am I doing tomorrow? What am I doing the day after that? What does my life look like as a result of some of the things that the Lord has put into our lives whilst we're here? And I know that uh, just having spoken to a number of you, you're going home with your heads kind of lifted up in a fresh way. And, and the Lord's been planting seeds of dreams in different people's hearts and minds. And, and uh, we, we're going home a little bit more whole, a little bit more healed than we were when we came. Uh, and so I just want to focus on what comes next. Like what, like, what does life look like from this point onwards? And we've looked at these, these three words so far that have shaped our church community. Um, so we looked at come, just a, an invitation to radical obedience. And I think that's come across in so many of the things that we've been discussing. Uh, and Martin, again, this morning. Uh, stay, just, just, let's just stay. Let's wait and receive the empowering presence of God. Taryn last night was, uh, I mean, I know she's my wife, but I thought she was brilliant last night. And uh, just on the subject of the, the, the uh, extravagantly more of God. And, and uh, so just as we're coming into land this afternoon, I, I, I feel like the, the fourth word that we want to share is the word go. It's the word go. And this isn't in my notes, but if I could prophetically say this for some people in the room. My wife Taryn and I, we have a sign up in our, in our uh, spare room. And, it's, and the sign says this, if you're looking for a sign, this is it. Uh, and, and so we just, that, we just, that makes us laugh when all the visitors come, you know, they stay in our spare room and, and they get the sign that they were looking for and then they can go and do whatever it is that God's asking them to do. And, and I just wonder whether the word go is a word that some people in this room need to hear. Maybe you've been waiting for some time. Maybe you've been saying, Lord, I need to hear the word go. And maybe me just saying this word this afternoon is, the, is, is the, the green light that you need to receive in your own life and ministry and call. You know, life is really, really short. Like uh, my uh, dad died when he was 53. And uh, uh, there are so many things that came off the back of that, of course. Uh, and I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But one of the things that I've learned is that life is way shorter than you want it to be. 
And so we don't have time to mess around just hoping that one day, you know, something will come and land in my lap and I'll get to experience whatever it was that I was waiting for. There's no time to waste. We're each stewards of our own lives. And I like to think about my own life as being like someone's given me a collection of pound coins or of euros to translate. And, and you know, every, every pound of your life that you spend is a, is a pound that you can't spend twice. And so every year of your life is a life that you can't use twice. You only get it once. And so time is really, really short. And so can I encourage you, if, you, if, if the Lord has put something on your heart this weekend then it's very important that you just pursue that with all of your heart and you don't wait. And I think some, some of you have been waiting for years for the sign that you didn't really need. Maybe you just need to hear the word go this afternoon. Like I say, it's not in my notes. Um, I might get a kicking from Taryn later on, but I just felt like I wanted to say that. Um, we, we moved house a while ago, and, and you, you know when you move house, you, have a, you do a bit of an assessment of all the things that you own. And one of the things that I realized I had was a whole full box full of instruction manuals for things that I didn't even own anymore, right? So, you know, like, it, literally everything comes with instructions, doesn't it? And I understand, you know, a television is a complicated thing these days. A washing machine's got more than one function. You, you know, you need manuals for that. But, but I think I could work out how to use a kettle or a toaster by myself. You know, I don't think I needed the instruction manual to say that. And in the world that we live in, our world is obsessed with instructions. Everything you buy, you get, don't you, you get instructions in, in 18 different languages and, and you get the extra thing from the European Union telling you about all the safety stuff. You just get instructions after instructions. I came across this website which, which gave some of the more ridiculous instructions that have appeared in product purchases. So, for example, there was a hairdryer, and the manual said, do not use while sleeping. <laughs> there was a microwave, and the manual said, do not use for drying pets. <laughs> and my favourite one, which may be lost in translation somewhere, it was the manual for a Swedish manufacturer of chainsaws, and it said, do not attempt to stop the chain with your hand or genitals. <laughs> you might be wondering where I'm going with this. Uh, the, world, the world is obsessed with having deeply detailed instructions, but it turns out that the call of God doesn't come with detailed instructions. It only comes with the next step. You know, so often we're waiting for just, oh, well, Lord, I'll do it when you show me exactly where this is going and when you, sh you give me everything that I need for the whole part of the journey. And the Lord says, you're not going to get that. You're only going to get to know the absolutely essential things that are necessary for you to take the first step. And that's been absolutely our experience. So the question is, what is it that we really need to know? What is it that the Lord really wants to tell us before we go from this place? And um, I want to circle back to that moment where Jesus is with his disciples for the very last time. And uh, I, like I said, you, you can find that in two different places in the writing of Luke. One at the end of his gospel and then secondly at the start of the book of Acts. And we're going to go to the start of the book of Acts this morning. So Acts chapter 1 and I'm going to read from verse 4. It says this, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, 
but wait for the gift my father promised. And again, that's just another way of saying, just stay where you are and God's going to do something to you, which will be an empowering for everything that he's calling you to do. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood before him, before them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And that's the text that I want to speak from this afternoon. So I don't know whether you have as much sympathy as I do for the disciples, but there they are looking up into the sky and you can see them kind of wondering, like, what's about to happen next? You know, they're they're kind of thinking, um, is Jesus going to disappear behind that cloud? And then is it going to reappear a few, few moments later with the four horses of the apocalypse? And it all kicks off from there. Like, at what point is anything going to happen now? You know, do we have time to have a shower first? Do we have time to kiss our family goodbye? Uh, what's about to happen next? And so, they, so that's essentially what they're doing. And so they ask him, don't they? They say, can we just ask you some questions about the plan? Can we just ask you the timing of things? Like, at what point are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Can you just give us the schedule? And he says, essentially, yeah, you don't need to know that. You don't need to know the times and dates that my father has set by his own authority. And again, let me just say what I just said earlier on. We, there are so many things that we wish we could know. And one of the things we, we, many of us in this room will, will wish that we could know is the times and the dates. Like, God, if you could just, I, I, you've given me a dream. You've, you've given me a sense of call. All I need to know is when. When's it going to happen? Like, when, when is this thing going to start to move? And God says, yeah, you, you actually don't need to know that, even though you think that you do. It turns out, though, that there are four specific promises that Jesus thinks that we do need to know. And the reason that I say that they're promises is because throughout the text of the passage we looked at yesterday and also in this passage here today, in our English translation, I don't know how it is for you, there are four moments where it says something will happen. And so in a sense, that's what we're going to do is just look at these four wills, the four promises, the four things that God thinks that we need to know as we leave this room today. The first thing is uh, that the church will prevail. He says the gospel will be preached. When my brother, I've got a twin brother actually, it's a bit of a freak show. We try not to spend too much time together because people, we were on the London tube train a while ago and uh, people were coming up with their phones and doing like selfies, you know, like, you know, just secret photographs because we look like we're identical, it looks like a mirror in between us. And, And so anyway, when we were teenagers, late teenagers, we went to go and stay with my uncle and we were very excited about it because my uncle, his most, the thing that he's most passionate about in the whole world is wine. 
And so we were like, this is going to be really cool. So we, we go to his house. Within 10 or 15 minutes, I would say, we've got this glass of wine in our hands that is the most incredible thing that you've ever drunk in your life. And we were like, this is so cool. The next evening, he's cooking dinner. And he says, oh, I've selected the absolutely perfect wine for this meal. And so if you could just go into my wine cellar and just go and pick it up, that'd be super helpful. And, and OK, that's fine. Where is it? He says, well, you, you need to go down the steps into the wine cellar. You need to go to the back of the wine cellar, turn left and then look up. And it's on the top shelf. It's the only thing on the top shelf on the left hand side at the end. You just need to take that wine and bring it. And so that's what I did. I went into the wine cellar, picked the wine, brought it out. And I'm just standing there holding it, looking like a bit of an idiot. And he's like, well, go on then, open it up. So I'm opening up this bottle of wine and I'm pouring out some glasses. And so he's still cooking and we're starting to drink this wine. And um, we're going, oh, this is, this is unbelievable, Uncle Stephen. Like, this is really fantastic. And he he's just, just looks confused. He's saying, it's really strange. It doesn't taste anything like I thought it was going to taste. And uh, I said, oh, really? Why is that? He said, oh, it's really strange. It tastes really like this other bottle of wine that I've got in my wine cellar. He says, he says uh, oh, yeah, this bottle of wine is, is the most expensive bottle of wine I've ever bought in my life. He said, he said I, 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 it was too good an opportunity to pass up. It was a bit of a bargain, but it's still a really, really, like, I mean, it's, it's more or less priceless. And, and he said, we're just saving it for like, you know, a really mega important event in the family. And I was like, oh, really? Yeah. Um, whereabouts would I have found that in your wine cellar? He said, oh, it's quite similar. You go to the end of the wine cellar and instead of turning left, you turn right, and then on the top shelf, that's where you would have found it. And then I realised, of course, to my shame, that I'd confused my left and my rights. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm realising now that this story is a very vague link to what I'm about to say. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> my point is... I couldn't put the cork back into the bottle, which is a bit like what happened on Easter Sunday, right? So, so when the stone, you see what I mean? It's a, it's a loose link. It's a loose link. When the stone was rolled away on Easter Sunday, there was no putting that thing back. You know, like from that moment, the, the salvation plan that God had intended before the creation of the world, that Jesus would die a sacrificial death in our place, that the resurrection would validate his sacrifice and that the spirit would, would be poured out as a result of those things which would propel us to carry the good news of Jesus to the four corners of the earth. That salvation plan was initiated, uh, was, was created before the creation of the world, was initiated on Easter Sunday and, and from that moment that the power of the gospel, the irrepressible nature of the church means that this is now unstoppable. Luke 24, verse 46, Jesus told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. I was reading recently about the church in Iran. Many of you will be familiar with what God's doing in Iran right now. But, you know, in 1979, they reckon that there were less than 500 followers of Jesus in the whole country of Iran. Nobody knows for sure now, but 
Uh, estimates are that it's well over a million followers of Jesus in Iran right now, and the church is growing by about 20% every year. So maybe within the next 10 years or so, there might be 5 million followers of Jesus in Iran. Jesus builds his church. It's the fastest growing church in the world, many think, Iran. Second fastest growing, Afghanistan. The church has never grown faster on the face of the earth than it is right now. It's bursting with life in Algeria, Somalia, Tajikistan, Kuwait. It's amazing. We don't need to know the times and dates that our Father has set by his own authority, but it turns out that we do need to know that that the gospel will be preached, that Jesus will build his church, that the church will prevail. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Which is an easy thing to say, but it's a harder thing to believe, isn't it? um, In our context, I was saying this in the workshop yesterday afternoon, but our hearts are breaking for, our, for the church in, in our nation in Scotland. You know, uh, there, there was um, a newspaper headline on the front page of a, a national newspaper in Scotland on Easter Sunday in 2017, and it simply said this, Christianity in crisis in Scotland. And they were basing that headline on a set of results, not a set of statistics that had been produced by and for the church and, and what they said was that uh, in 2002, when they'd done a particular survey, they said, how many people are in church sitting in a seat on a particular Sunday in May 2002? There were 573,000 followers of Jesus sitting in a church on a particular Sunday. When they did the same thing in 2016, it was 390,000. So in other words, since we've lived in Scotland, let's hope these two things aren't linked, but... A third of the church has disappeared. And actually, statistically, it's not that people are turning their backs on church. It's that they're dying. You know, over half of the church in Scotland is over 65 years old. And so the church is just getting older and older and just dropping off the twig at the end. And as part of that process, obviously, the the number of churches is diminishing all the time. And And so... Uh, on average, 10 churches a month in Scotland have closed for the last 20 years. So every month, another 10 churches close. And in fact, the rate of closure is accelerating all the time. And so that's our context. That's our situation. Now, I did a bit of Googling before we got on the plane to come here. It turns out the Netherlands is almost identical. I saw um, a statistic. It said in 2002... 43% of Dutch people considered themselves to be members of a religious community. And by 2016, that had dropped to 31%. So it's a third. It's almost exactly the same. And then the, the uh, NL Times, ne- is that Netherlands Times? Uh, three quarters of Dutch now indicate that churches have little or no connection with their own outlook on the meaning of life. Two-thirds say they have little or no trust in the churches or religious organizations. And so we face very similar challenges, you guys and us. Like we feel very uh, like, like kindred spirits in this challenge. And so it's a huge challenge that we face in our generation. God decided out of all the generations who've ever lived, we're the ones to live in this moment. 
And uh, the truth is that what we're doing often doesn't look like much, does it? I don't know how, I, may, I haven't seen your churches yet. We're going to visit a couple tomorrow, so we'll find out. But in our church, like, it, it, it doesn't look very impressive. You know, we had a Sunday not very long ago where one of the main kind of key leaders in our church, he had to sit there for the whole service holding two wires together and he wasn't able to move his hands even a millimetre or the whole, you know, everything went black, you know. So he just had to hold these two wires for the whole service. We had another service recently where we'd decided that, because our church meets in eight different locations, and so we were like, hey, wouldn't it be cool to just join them all together by video link one Sunday? And so we did that. And uh, it was all fine except for, you know, like on Zoom, where if there's a glitch on Zoom, then suddenly like you get, you get it all, but it's all speeded up really quick like that. And so, and so throughout the whole of my talk that was beamed to all of these eight different locations, every now and then I would start, you know, I'd be speaking like this and then there'd be a glitch. And then I'd be like this. <laughs> Doesn't look like much, just, you know, putting stuff into minibuses and vans and taking them in and out of high schools and different community centres every Sunday. But friends, history is on our side. The church will prevail. Jesus is building his church. He's got no other plan for reaching your nation than you. G.K. Chesterton, who's an author uh, uh, about 100 years ago, I think, he said, five times in history, the church has to all appearance gone to the dogs. And five times in history, it was the dog that died. The church will prevail. That's the first thing that Jesus wants us to know. The second thing he wants us to know is this. We'll have everything that we need. He says, you don't need to know about the dates and times, but you do need to know that you're going to have the power of God with you, the personal presence of God with you. Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, like I said yesterday, we... I loved being a Boy Scout as a kid. And, and uh, so when my son, my eldest son, wanted to join the Boy Scouts, I was really excited about it. And he had a similar moment where the, uh, the, the guy who was running the Scouts, he sent us as parents a really long list of everything that needed to be packed into his rucksack. You know, and so it was like uh, um, uh, weather for, uh, clothes for warm weather, you know, and then lots of layers for cold weather and then... Uh, clothes for wet weather and a bobble hat for snow and, and gloves and, and sleeping bag and, and roll mat thing and a pillow and, and plates and cups and all this kind of, you know, just loads, loads and loads of stuff. And I can remember sitting him down, we packed it all into his rucksack and I said, son, you could go anywhere on the face of the earth and you could face literally any challenge that, that the world could throw at you and you would find something in that rucksack that would be of help to you. And isn't that what God does for us? He's not sending us out to do what they did without giving them the resources and the power that they had. He's giving us everything that we need, the transforming power of God. He's changing us from the inside out. He's, he's giving us the power to say no to temptation and yes to God. He's giving us the courage to speak up and to speak out. He's giving, giving us the power to contend for joy even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We'll have everything that we need. Ironically, my son couldn't get the zip undone on his rucksack and so he didn't really use anything that was in the rucksack, but never mind. 
A number of years ago, my wife, Taryn, she'd run out of perfume in about November. And uh, thank goodness, my very elderly grandmother, she phoned up uh, about two days later and she said, oh, I'm going shopping to buy uh, your Christmas presents. And so what would you like for Christmas? And Taryn's like, I would like some new perfume. And so uh, grandma wrote it down on her list and then my mother took her shopping later on in the week. And so we knew that the perfume is on the way, for which we were all thankful. And then just, just, (laughs) just a little joke, just a little joke. So... So anyway, uh, in in our country, I know it's different where you are, but in our country, we exchanged the gifts on Christmas Day in the afternoon. So we all had lunch together, and then all of the presents get passed around, and uh, uh, Taryn can't wait to open her present, and so she takes Grandma's present, she rips it open, and she discovers a miniature sewing kit. It was a bit awkward. And so, I mean, I was so proud of Taryn because she did what all English people do in this moment. She said, oh, thank you so much. It's just what I've always wanted. You, sh- you shouldn't have. And so she's opening this thing up and, and she, she's trying to pretend like she's delighted. And then all of the other presents get open. There's one present left. And there was a lady there who was like a distant cousin or something like that. Uh, I forget her name. But we'd never seen her before. We'd never seen her since. There was one present left. There was one present left in the middle of the room. And uh, then my grandmother says to Taryn, Oh, Taryn, would you mind just passing that gift over to... Uh, you know, cousin Barbara, whatever her name was. So Taryn picks up this gift and she shakes it. She knows exactly what it is. And then, you know, again, I was so proud of her. She just, you know, smiled sweetly and said, here you go, you know, and, and, uh, and then later on, whilst we were all having coffee, Taryn just went and switched around the presents. Uh, so I maybe shouldn't have disclosed that bit. No. <laughs> Do you know, Jesus is giving you the right gifts. You don't need anyone else's gifts. To to fulfill the call of God on your life, whatever it is that God's been laying on your heart over this weekend that you're going to go and accomplish for him in the time to come, you don't need anyone else's gifts. You just need your own gifts. And God has given you everything that you need. He's giving us everything that we need. The third will is is we will bear witness to God. This happens in both accounts, in Luke and also in Acts. Jesus specifically calls us to be his witnesses. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When I, I became a Christian when I was 15 and I didn't come from a, a, a household that worshipped Jesus and so I was really excited about it. You know, I was just like, this is amazing. I've met Jesus. He's changing my life. It was the most, it was the, the most brilliant thing that had ever happened to me. And so I, I just wanted all of my friends and everyone I knew to come into contact with Jesus because I knew that that would change their lives too. And so, for example, we had a prayer group in our church which is called the Prayer for Revival Prayer Group. And so I was like, I'm joining it. And I think from memory, it happened like on a a Wednesday morning at half past six in the morning or something like that. And I was a teenager, right? I I didn't want to get up at that 
ungodly hour. But, but, but I was so desperate. I was like, I want my friends to, to meet Jesus. So I'm going to have to go to the Prayer for Revival prayer group. And so um, I set, you know, about three alarm clocks in my bedroom and they all went off at different times. And I still just slept through the whole lot of them the first week. And so the second week, uh, it was the school holidays. So I literally stayed awake all night so that I could go to the prayer meeting at half past six the following morning. Another group I joined was um, a group that, and maybe some of you guys have done this as well, uh, we did kind of like miming for Jesus on the streets of the, you know, the local high street. You know, so we all bought coloured t-shirts and we wore white gloves. And we, you know, so we'd, we'd kind of do miming to worship songs, you know. I remember that one. Uh, and... Hands up if you did that. Has anyone else did that? Yeah. And, and, and then we would, we would enact the crucifixion scene with the white gloves on. And um, we just wanted people to know Jesus. Another thing I did was I, uh, I discovered in the Christian bookshop that they didn't only sell books. I'd never been inside the Christian bookshop until I came to know Jesus. But I, I went into the bookshop. There was books and books and books and also T-shirts. And so I was like, this is awesome. You know, I can just wear T-shirts and people will know that I follow Jesus. And so I had one. It looked like it said heavy metal. And then when you got closer to it, it actually said heavenly metal. Do you see what they did there? You see? And, and then there was another one. It's my favorite one. It said worship the best. And so I wore this. T- I loved that T-shirt. I wore it every day. And unfortunately, over time, it didn't, you know, it kind of faded and just, you know, it wasn't completely clear what it said. And so after a while, it looked like it said worship the beast, which is the kind of, that was the opposite. That was kind of the opposite of the message that I was trying to communicate. And then, uh, so anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, a father figure, a spiritual father for me, a mentor figure, he took me to one side. And he said, I can't help but notice one kind of common thread in all of your activity to try and bear witness to Jesus. They don't actually involve you speaking to anyone. (laughs) He said, our gospel is a spoken gospel. I met this guy once. He was the pastor of a church of 75,000 people in Argentina. And I asked him what all of you would ask him if you, if you met him, which is, how do you get a church of 75,000 people? Please tell me. He said, oh, I've got, it's, it's a really great secret. You know, I, I could share it with you, but you'll just have to promise that you just, you know, carefully steward that answer because it's, you know, it's a God-given answer to the question, how do you get a church of 75,000 people? He said, listen, I'll whisper it to you. He said, if you want to get a church of 75,000 people, you've got to tell more than 75,000 people about Jesus. You know, we, I don't know whether you know, but Scotland is famous in the UK for the revivals that it's experienced. And, and the most recent revival was in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s in the Hebridean Islands. And we long for that. We pray for that. We pray that God would do that again. That it would be, you know, they, they said it was like God walking the land. We long for him to do that. But until he does, and as well as him doing that, we still just need to share our faith. And honestly, I believe that this moment we're in right now is the greatest opportunity for the gospel that we have ever known. Ironically, it comes at the time when we're the tiredest we've ever been. 
But if you think about it, we have experienced crisis upon crisis upon crisis. We've had a global health crisis, a global economic crisis. We've got an environmental crisis. We've got a mental health crisis. We've got a cost of living crisis. We've got an energy crisis. We've got a global diplomatic crisis. We've, we've got a governmental crisis. We've got crisis. And every time, I don't know whether it's the same for you, but for us, we're like, oh, well, at least this is going to be the last crisis. There can't possibly be another crisis that comes after this one. And then it comes along, doesn't it? And I'm not saying that the Lord has caused any of that, but I'm absolutely convinced that, number one, the Lord isn't surprised by any of it. Number two, I I can't imagine, I just can't contemplate the idea that the Lord wouldn't take advantage of this set of crises in which everyone's lives are being shaken to their very core. Everything that people have been trusting in and believing in for 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 the whole of their lives is being It's turning into sand. In this moment, isn't it just possible that God is wanting to redeem this moment? Isn't it just possible that we're just on the edge of something really extraordinary? I think it is. But I think what it takes is, number one, us to uh, perceive what it is that the Holy Spirit's doing and, and partner with him as he does it. But also we need to open our mouths Our friends, our neighbours, our work colleagues, they need to know the the reason for the hope that we have. He's scattering us, you know, this afternoon, he's scattering us to all the nations of the Benelux countries and beyond. And wherever we find ourselves, he's calling us to speak up for him. We will bear witness to him. And the final promise is this, Jesus will return. I love this hilarious picture of the disciples just standing there looking up into the sky and it's almost as if they're expecting the apocalypse to come at any moment. And these two men who, it seems like they're probably angels. It doesn't specifically say it in the text. It just says that they're wearing white. But uh, um, they say this in verse 11. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. There's the fourth will. This same Jesus will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. You know, in the vineyard, we're all about the kingdom, aren't we? And and we have this beautiful um, theological explanation for the experience of life, right? We have this explanation, which, which I just think is such a precious thing. We're able to say, no, the kingdom is here. That's how we get to experience what we've experienced this weekend. And at the same time is that the kingdom is not fully here which is why we get to still experience the suffering and pain of death and, and sickness and so on. But that what he's saying is there will be a time when the now and the not yet ceases to be our explanation for life. Because it's only now. There's no not yet anymore. Jesus has come for the rest of eternity. I've said many times before that I understand for the women, childbirth is you know, a bit sore. Right? I understand that. And, uh, you know, what, people, what, what you women don't understand is, is that, you know, for the men, it's traumatic too, right? You know, we just want to pass that information on. 
When, when my wife Taryn went into labour to have our first child, I was about uh, three hours drive away. And so I just jumped in my car and I'm driving, you know, fast but entirely according to the speed limit. And then I, I you know, and I'm getting a regular update on the phone from Taryn's mum who's saying, oh, you know, the contractions are coming a bit faster and it's going to be fine. Don't worry, no need to rush. But, you know, as soon as you get here, the better. And I arrived there and I, 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 I think because... She, uh, my mother-in-law had been saying, she's fine, she's fine. I, I was just really shocked by what I saw. She was clearly not fine. And, um, you know, she was pale. She was really quiet. She was sobbing. And things were not going well. And the midwife was at the house, and, and it was, like, really scary. And, and I said, well, I'm going to take Taryn to the hospital. The midwife said, no, no, you can't. It wouldn't be safe. And so the midwife drove us in her car to the hospital, and, and it was, like... Pretty, pretty scary, and, and then we, obviously we got to the hospital, and, and you know, thank God everything worked out okay. But, but again, just, just to see my wife in such agony and such pain was just like, I mean, genuinely traumatic. And, and, but do you know what happened? When, when our child was born, do you know what she did? She smiled. It was as if, just for a moment, all of the pain, all of the, the difficulty, the, the agony of the previous uh, number of hours was just a, a past memory. And in that moment, there was just absolute and perfect joy. And that's how Jesus describes his coming. He says, it's agony right now. There's really painful times, times of sorrow and real difficulty. But it's not the end. John 16, verse 21, Jesus says, A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is the time of your grief, but I will see you again and you'll rejoice. And so as we leave this room and we go off to extend the kingdom in all kinds of crazy and innovative ways and, and as we plant churches and uh, evangelize the nations and, and we, we, you know, some of you will find yourself in all kinds of crazy parts of the world in terms of government or education or medicine or politics or, or uh, media or whatever it is, the truth is that we won't be unopposed we have an enemy and his intention is to prevent us from doing all of that. Jesus didn't ever say it would be easy. But he did say it would be worth it. And so the, the season that we're in right now, we're tired, we're a bit battle weary. It's hard. We're being opposed. We're living in a culture that is extremely difficult. And, you know, the values of our culture seem to be spinning off at a accelerating rate and we're increasingly feeling like aliens who've landed on another planet but it won't always be like that and he says Jesus will return now is the time of your grief but I will see you again and you will rejoice why don't we stand And I know that uh, there's all plans to worship and, and to um, uh, minister to one another and all kinds of things like that. But I would, I would love to just pray a blessing on you, if that's okay.
Could you stick up your hand where you are if you're a pastor of a church? Could we just gather around the pastors? I'd love to just pray a blessing specifically on the pastors. And Lord, the truth is that being a pastor in this last two or three years has been almost impossible. It's been very difficult. And we honour these, these men and women. We honour them before you, God. We're so thankful for their service, their sacrifice, their kindness, their love, their care. We're so grateful, God, for these men and women, for their leadership. Many of us wouldn't be in the room if it weren't for these people here right now. We're so thankful, God. And we just want to pray, God, if you bless anyone in the room right now, would you give a double portion to them? Holy Spirit, would you be poured out on their lives? We pray, God, that you would restore the years that the locusts have eaten. God, that you would give them fresh hope, fresh vision, fresh energy, fresh love. Give them the strength to offer a new welcome to the new people who are coming into our churches. Lord, would you give them your voice, the gift of your voice, the gift of your leadership, Jesus, that you would be guiding each one of us in our, in our leadership of the churches. And if you're standing beside one of those people and you have a prophetic word, then now would be a really great time to just offer that prophetic word or to pray something prophetically. It's going to take a couple of minutes to do that. Thank you, God. And part of the story uh, that God has been writing in our own context is to do with multiplication. So I think I've probably said, but, you know, our one church became two, became three, became five, became seven, and now is like, if you count them, like 20. And, and so uh, I just want, I, I know that that's something that God has given us and I would love to just pass it on to you. I don't know theologically how that works, but I just pray, God, that you would, anything that you've given us, would you give to them? 
Jesus. We just pray for the, the, the power of multiplication to be kind of uh, uh, forged into their DNA. And we honour the past and we can see what you've done, taking one vineyard church in the Benelux nations to now 11 or whatever it is. And we love that. And we could see, you know, that's like a huge acceleration. And now we just pray for more acceleration and multiplication. God, would you raise up church planters? Would you multiply leaders? God, we pray that you would give these leaders vision uh, and, and not only vision, but a strategy Jesus, that, that you would cause the Benelux nation to explode with uh, growth. We pray that the story around the world would be, have you seen what's happened to the Benelux vineyard? We would love that. We'd love that. I wonder, uh, uh, just as we're praying for those guys, I think there are probably people in the room and... And either you've, you've had church planting on your heart for some time uh, or, or just even this weekend, you've just heard the Lord starting to speak and you, or you're wondering whether the Lord's speaking to you about church planting. Could you come to the front if that's you? I know that's a, like a really scary thing, but we would love to just lay hands on you. If, if you just wonder whether at some point in the next 20 years, God might ask you to plant a church. Yeah. And this isn't like I'm promising, you know, this isn't you saying, right, I'm off. You know, I'm going and everyone's going, hang on a minute, you can't go yet. We need you where we are. Like, we don't need to think about the practicalities at the moment. We just need to lay. And so could, could some people come and pray? And we'll, especially people from our team. Jesus, would you, would you reinforce what you're saying? Would you reinforce what you're saying? We long for churches to, to rise up. New communities of faith to be formed. Some will be small, some will be large, but they'll all be of your design. We don't want anyone to plant a church who isn't called by you, God. But equally, we want everyone to plant a church who is called by you. And so we just long for you to speak, Jesus, by your word and your spirit. Jesus. Come, God. Come, God. Spirit of God. We pray for the download of a, a design, a blueprint, a strategy. A, a like this is, what, this is the kind of church that God is calling me to plant, calling us to plant. If there are couples, would you bring the couples on the same page so that it's not like one and not the other. It's like the whole family gets to do this together. Even the children in some cases. Jesus, this has to be a work of your spirit, confirmed and reconfirmed and reconfirmed. We pray, God, that you would do that. Spirit of God. Spirit of God.